has a little delay. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to El Paso Bible Church. It is good to see you guys here. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, I have two things that I need to mention out of the bulletin. Uh, if you did get one, if you didn't get one, I encourage you to get one on your way out. Uh, we have our church luncheon this coming Sunday, March 19th, following the worship service. Uh, there is a sign-up in, in the lobby there where you could uh, tell us what you're bringing. Uh, but you don't have to bring anything to stay, but we, I do encourage you to stay. It's, it's a good time, fun time with, with people here. And the other one I want to mention is a baptism service. Uh, this is happening April the 2nd. And our bulletin says following the worship service, but it's actually during the worship service that we have our baptisms. So if you have not been baptized, um, I was going to throw a Nacho Libre reference in there, but I shouldn't. Uh, if you haven't been baptized and, and you're, you're interested in knowing more, maybe you just want to know what it's, what it's about. You don't have to be, uh, get baptized or commit to it. Um, please uh, talk to Denise or talk to Pastor Josh about it. And uh, if you want to do it, we could set it up for April the 2nd. So uh, good times coming up. And uh, with that, I'd like you to uh, turn in your Bibles or just listen to John chapter 14. And I'm reading verses 29 through 31. <clears throat> and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no, no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to come together as your body, the church, and sing and pray and be encouraged by the teaching of your word. Uh, we do think about those of those that are sick our family members, uh, some church members here, uh, we ask that you bring them comfort and strength and peace. And we ask that this may be an awesome service today, as it always is. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you now stand with us for a time of worship? fail me now you won't fail me now in the waiting the same God who's never late is working all things out you're working all things out yes I will lift you high in the lowest valley yes I will bless your
price for all my guilty Who I care that much about me Let me tell you about my Jesus oh. He makes a way Thank you. 
sin was heavy but chains break at the weight of your glory i needed shelter i was an orphan now you call me a citizen of heaven
be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. I uh, hope you're doing well today. The men are doing well. They just have a little meat coma going on today. Uh, but we had a great time last night uh, at our Triple B. Uh, although I hear some of our younger men have satirically corrupted the title. I was told that one of the bees all of a sudden became babes. And I want to clarify that that is not, it is not beef, Bibles, and babes. There were no babes present. In fact, everyone there was too ugly to qualify, so that didn't happen. But it was beef, Bible, and brews, and we had a good time. You know, the Bible talks about the soothing aroma of the searing of the fat going up to the Lord, so I think he was happy too. Uh, you can almost just put fajita seasoning on mesquite charcoal and not need to eat, right? It smells so good. But um, had a good time, so I uh, hope you guys can join us. Uh, we don't have a perfectly regular schedule for that because we have to move around for certain things. We try not to mess up the kitchen the night before the potluck and then, you know, various things. But we'll let everybody know uh, for the next one. I hope you can come. It's always a great time. I do want to remind you about the baptism. Uh, I think the bulletin, Jacob mentioned this, but I want to mention it now. There are a few more people sitting down. Uh, The baptism is is not following the service. It's during the service. Um, So that is... um, you know, for some people, they feel a little bit nervous about that. Don't be, um, I'm going to be here dressed looking like I'm going out to hunt ducks. So if anybody's going to look a little bit weird, it's, it'll be me. But um, if you haven't been baptized since you've trusted in Christ and you would like to be baptized, please let us know. Um, there's, we, we do a little, mostly uh, for children, we'll actually do a class, right? Just a one-time class. But then uh, for adults, I also, we just want to talk through our understanding of baptism, things like that. So uh, we want to do that ahead of time if possible. And uh, I think that's everything that I wanted to remind everybody about. I don't remember when we started 1 John, but we're going to finish it today. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. Children, you guys can go to Children's Church. It's only adventurers that go today because we have communion elements out here, Um, right? So adventurers, you can go to the adventurers class. There's one adventurer. There's two, three adventurers. The rest of y'all are not adventurous. All right, there they go. All right, and let's pray this morning. We also, we've got a few prayer requests that we need to pray for as well, together and corporately. Um, So I hope that you would join with me as we do that. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, We do thank you for your word that at every turn promises your faithfulness to your promises. Uh, Father, as we're going through 1 John Many of those promises are brought to the forefront, but the one this morning that is so striking to me is that when we see you, we will be like you, for we will see you as you truly are. Uh, And today, we want to remember that promise because we know that we are not like you entirely today. We know that that is a future promise. We know that some of us are in the hospital, like Steve Myers, uh, who is longing uh, to be healed and is longing uh, to be uh, free of cancer. And Father, we, we pray for healing. We pray for, pray for restoration. Even this morning, we know that all of us will be free from cancer because you do not have cancer and your son doesn't have cancer and we will be like him forever and with him forever. Uh, and Father, so we pray that confidence for each of us, but we pray it certainly for him as well. Uh, Father, we pray for healing for those who are suffering in other things in other ways as well. 
knowing that that is always in your hand, no matter the instrument or the means that you use to do it. And we ask for that this morning. We pray that you would bless our time in your word today to your glory. You know that your glory is the reason we're here. Uh, we're not here to amass things. We're not here uh, simply to recreate, but we're here on task, on mission to bring your, you glory with our lives. Um, and we love that and thank you for it. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, uh, as I said, we're going to be finishing First John. I don't even pay attention to when I started First John. Somebody will find out and tell me, how in the world did you do that? I would like to remind you that I hang out with guys that preach, you know, like 700 sermons out of Ephesians. So y'all need to suck it up. Okay. I, wait, I move way faster than that. Okay. First uh, John 5. First John 5, last few verses. But remember that we're talking about, really we're talking about the means to experience fullness of joy in our lives. Living life here, fullness of joy, on task, suffering successfully, right, loving each other, uh, living this life obediently, faithfully, walking the way he wants us to walk. Um, that's not legalism, that's a mission, Right? To know that he has us here for a reason um, and to engage in that mission and to fulfill our obligations to do it that he has provided graciously for us to do. Um, and the means for that is fellowship, actually. It's not <laughs> winning a battle or a game or putting points on the board. It is simply walking in love with our brothers and sisters in Christ sacrificially seeking their best interests, whether they think we're being nice or not. I always have to ask that, add that at the end these days, right? The whole world is focused on being nice, and they don't care what that costs you or costs them. So I want you to be nice. Fellowship is the key to a fullness of joy. Um, and so John has told us this is how, this is what you have. This is how to restore it. This is how to build it up, and this is how to use it. You could say this is how to enjoy it, but how to use it. It's an instrument in our hands that we have in order to accomplish God's glory in the local church. Um, and that gives us confidence when we know those things. Or we just kind of breeze past the benefit of knowing things um, as if that is just a, an analog to what other religions and other people and other churches and other faiths provide. They don't. They don't tell you what you're here for. They don't tell you what your purpose is. They don't tell you that you can know not just one thing, but a whole host of things, like John tells us here. Uh, and if you don't believe me, I wouldn't, listen, I wouldn't spend a whole heck of a lot of time on comparative religions, but fairly quickly, you can find out the things that it tells you you don't know. All of them. You don't know a whole lot. A friend of mine characterizes a lot of modern churches is uh, we don't know anything and we're proud of it, churches, right? But that's not just them. That's uh, out there. That's Anyway, the Bible talks a lot about what you can know, knowing things, the importance of knowing things. We have confidence in knowing who we are. We have confidence in knowing that no matter what else we do, no matter what else anybody else does, no matter what happens to us, no matter if we're happy or sad or depressed, 
or, on the, or ecstatic, any of those things, no matter our emotive state, no matter our behavior, no matter all of those things, our identity is static. Our identity is permanent. Our identity is everlasting and eternal in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's who I am. Couldn't you tell? Yeah. That's why you got to know it, because it's not going to show you that in the mirror very often. You got to know it with your mind. So you can know that. You can have confidence. Uh, we can know because of our identity what our responsibility is, uh, particularly to our siblings. To our siblings. Uh, one of my siblings uses the word siblings when he's mad at all of us. I am not using it that way. Siblings is just a biological relationship, right? That's your brothers and sisters. John just uses the word brothers. Um, get over it if that offends your gender sensibilities. I don't care. That's just how he uses it. Brothers, brothers and sisters, siblings. That's what they used. Um, and, and that God wants us to behave that way. So that's how, not only how we're acting out our responsibilities to our siblings, but that's how our Father wants us to relate to Him also, that He wants us to love Him by loving them. And that's important to our fullness of joy in this life and our fellowship and our experience. He tells us also in that vein that we can know what teachers we should listen to and which ones we should ignore. That's one of the, the frustrating things about my limited previous involvement in local politics is they don't, everybody gets their five minutes. Everybody. Everybody gets their five minutes. Y'all aren't understanding what I'm saying. Not everybody should be listened to for even five minutes. Not everybody is worthy to address anybody for five minutes, to be quite frank. I can't, I don't, I can't handle it. There are Bible teachers that are not worthy of listening to for five minutes. And I don't care how long they've been teaching. They've often been teaching for longer than I've been alive. You know what happens when they come on the radio? Click. Y'all still listen to the radio? Nobody listens to the radio. Found out early, hardly anybody rides a bicycle. You guys are weird. Anyway. You know what I mean. Turn it off. If they don't talk about Jesus a lot, if they don't confess to Jesus of the Bible, if they don't agree with him about himself, then they have nothing else worthy of listening to. That's what John says. So that's another thing we can know. Knowing what to do when we sin, when our brother sins against us. And also, a third category, knowing what to do when we see our brother sin. That was just a couple of weeks ago. When we see something that doesn't affect us, hurt us directly, when we see a brother sinning, we're supposed to intercede for that brother We know that. We know how to pray when that happens. And we know how not to pray. We know what to pray for. We know how to intercede. And today, we're going to talk about some more things that we know. As children of God, people who have a permanent, uh, unseverable identity in Jesus Christ, the things that we know that we can engage um, as we conclude. So we know some other things. That's the first words in verse 18, which is where we're starting today of chapter 5 of 1 John. So if you still aren't there yet, go ahead and get there, however you have to do it. 
Um, I will make exemptions for somebody who has an eidetic memory and you just turn there in your head. But don't tell me about it because I'll be too jealous if you can do that. All right. We know that no one who is begotten of God sins. What in the blazes? John has said something like this before. So we have to remember, because what did he just get done telling us? When you see your brother sinning, should you see your brother sinning, you should expect it. You should expect it quite a lot because there's now instructions for what to do. It is not the exception. It's the rule. You need instructions for dealing with it. You're not just supposed to survive it, right? There are things in your life like that, that you're just, you know, you are going to encounter things where the only two choices both stink, and you're just going to have to pick the one that stinks less. Johnson here would say, grab that cactus, you know, hug the cactus. I say, grab the potty, right? If you've ever installed a potty, you know there's no way to get it in or out without just grabbing it and picking it up and hoping not to have to do it again soon. But there's no strategy to avoid it, necessarily. Sometimes you just got to do it. But when you see your brother sinning, you need to be prepared to intercede for him so that he would be restored from the bondage that sin creates in his life. That's what John said. So what is this business? No one who is begotten of God sins. Well, understand that there are multiple ways that Scripture talks about being begotten of God. Even John, I think, has used two different ones here in comparison to each other as we've gone through. This is an indicative verb, right? It's a statement of fact. So in the sense that John, he's saying that this is objective reality. This is not a probability, a possibility, a hypothetical situation. He's saying that whatever he means, it's a statement of fact. There's no wiggle room. And the problem is that I think in modern times, we add specificity to terms that aren't warranted, all right? So you're, by definition, at this historical point in, in the United States Church, you are a bunch of revivalists. You didn't know that, but you are kind of. Like that's the historical extension that we're in. You are also devotional hermeneutic people. You look at all the Bible as if it was written to you. Stop that. It's not written to you. It's not all meant for your quiet time. Go talk about Israelite cannibalism in the prophets and try to figure out how to apply that to your life. Stop. So in the revivalist camp, whenever they're talking about being born, they're talking about being born again, the equivalent to giving birth to an infant that is now your child and is so permanently. That's a valid scriptural category for being born. I mean, that's what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, right? You have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? So Jesus explains to him, that's what he's talking about. You need to be born again. How can I do that again? Well, Nicodemus, you're a little slow here. Pick up on the, on the theme. But that's not the only way. Because we know that that wasn't the only way that the culture talked about it, being born. It was not necessarily the moment that you exited the womb in the birth canal of your mother. 
And spiritually speaking, it's not only a reference to the time in which you are born into the spiritual family of God through Jesus Christ, the moment that you are declared righteous and justified and given eternal life, where you were born as a baby in Christ. But there are no exceptions to that, by the way. The question is whether you stay one or not. That's where the, the, allegory, the illustration breaks down. Did any of your children stay babies? No? That's not a choice you get biologically. Lots of people make that choice spiritually. They get buried as infants, spiritually speaking. It's not only talking about that, though. Not just our identification, not the moment we receive eternal life. I mean, we know that because those two things can't be true. John does told us to expect what to do when a brother, a fellow believer in Jesus Christ who has that same inseverable permanent identity in Jesus Christ sins. And then he says, no one who is begotten of God sins. He's got to mean something different. And we find that the way that the ancient world talked about this had two things, two concepts, two points in someone's life. And I think you probably are going to recognize them when we talk about it, but logically, right, those two things can't be true. And I've told you this before, you have been, because I have been, and I've heard people doing it, it's, it's common. Almost everybody in this room at some point has been in a local church where they have been habituated to accept contradictions, not only as truth, but as the highest form of truth, and they call it a mystery. Don't do that. We are in the process of tearing that garbage down. Contradictions are not mysteries. There is not one thing in Scripture that is called a mystery that is an outright logical contradiction. So get that out of your brain. No one can do it for you. I'm trying to help you. That's all I can do. But we find that in the ancient world, there are two points at which uh, frequently where a son or a child was talked about as being begotten of his father. And John has used them, them both in a similar kind of statement. Really, the second one refers to when a son is adequately prepared to bear the responsibilities and the rights of his inheritance. You, you're used to hearing things like this, and maybe you didn't understand what was going on there, like the enthronement psalms, Psalm 2, 7 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today you were born. David was already a ruling monarch in Israel when that was spoken to him. Because it was at that point he was receiving the inheritance promised to him by Yahweh. And it wasn't just in Psalm. Psalm 2-7 is one of the most alluded to Psalms in the New Testament referring to Jesus. In fact, we see that particularly when it was used for accession to the throne. A prince was begotten the day that he moved from being a prince into being a king when he was equipped to rule, when he was equipped to take on the dynastic inheritance that he would receive from his father. It's quoted in the New Testament in Acts to refer to Jesus specifically after his resurrection, in his glorified body, that today he was begotten. 
In a very, in an absolute sense, he is the God, the Son in eternity past. He is the Son of God. But today, as the ruling monarch of Israel, he was begotten as well as the king in his glorified state, his glorified body, having accomplished the work that fulfilled all the prophecies relevant to the one who would rule on the throne of David forever. Today that happened, the sermon in Acts says. Hebrews talks about him as the moment that he was glorified at the right hand of the Father, as being the moment that he was begotten. Those are important distinctions to make, right? Because we're not going to accept contradictions to be the communication of the highest form of truth, right? People feel very spiritually smug when they can simply allow the contradiction to coexist in their brain. They think they've reached the highest plane when, in fact, they've probably just flipped the switch off. Most people don't have a switch on synapses. They just have a dimmer. They just slow them down. That's not right. Because this reference here, right, can be begotten. And John has told us what our future is, has he not? None of you today, me included, none of, I should use the second person plural, none of us here today, just in case you think that I'm not including myself, are like Jesus yet. Right? Why is that? Because there's a mechanism. You will not be like Jesus until you see him for who he truly is when you're standing in his presence and you behold him with your eyeballs. You will see him and you will be like him in his glory. And in that moment, I think is what John is saying, we will be begotten of God because we will be like the one who was begotten of God. And in case you were wondering, at that point, we won't be sinning anymore. No one who is begotten of God sins. It's when we're glorified, when we receive our inheritance. Yesterday at the, the Triple B, that's, we were talking about that, the necessity of humility and submission among the, the young men in the church as they're looking forward to the time in which God will exalt his children knowing that that doesn't, necess- that doesn't happen in, in this life, today, tomorrow, in the days that we have left on this earth, but it, that it's a future thing. All of us are looking in that sense to be like him and to be begotten of him, to receive the inheritance that he has promised us. It's an intrinsic hope for our future that when, I mean, I hope you understand this, Uh, Being glorified is not simply becoming an avenger, right? Yeah, we talked about this. It's basically, if you look at the deities and the mythology of all of the world, essentially, and you go and you look, it's basically one big orgy and bar fight, right? It's people with superpowers that don't know how to behave. There's a lot of those in the Avengers movies, yes. We have a, a very staunch Avengers fan sitting right back here. My friend Silas, he agrees. He agrees. He's, he's not in his head. He agrees. He agrees. You are not going to have a moral deficit. You are not going to have a moral deficit 
when you're glorified. You are not going to sin anymore when you receive the inheritance that God gives you. That's what John's talking about. In fact, he draws the, the illusion. He says, and in the meantime, since we're not begotten of God like he is yet in that sense, we have a benefit. We know that no one who is begotten of God sins. That's our hope. That's the future. But he who was born of God, begotten of God, who is glorified, who is without sin, keeps him, guards him, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The world doesn't, the evil one does not touch him. That's an important thing to understand because there are many people in the world that claim demonic oppression or satanic oppression when they are simply being stupid. Because they get tragic consequences for their actions and they think this must be Satan's doing. Do not underestimate the depth of our stupidity. Substantial consequences can result as consequence of unwise decisions. Jesus doesn't promise here that he will guard you from your stupidity, actually. Now, you could maybe get that promise from somewhere else, but you don't get it from this verse. The promise here is that he will guard you from the evil one, and the evil one won't touch us. And that's a tremendous benefit. We know, there's that word again, we know, not from looking in the mirror, you know because the Bible tells you, you know because John tells you, you know because Jesus tells you, you know because it is the holistic message of Scripture that your identity is in Christ by grace through faith simply as a gift and that there are benefits that come with it. You know that. So don't try to look in the mirror. The whole church is looking in the mirror to try to confirm their identity. Y'all know that doesn't even work biologically, right? I was hit by a car when I was five years old, and I didn't remember the name of the color purple for multiple weeks in a row. I couldn't look in the mirror and say, these are my parents and this is who I am. You know who I thought Joshua was? A little teddy bear with a t-shirt on it that my grandparents left in the hospital. You can't even guarantee any confirmation of your identity absolutely empirically by looking at your own face. You must do it in your mind. You must be convinced that what Jesus Christ says about your identity is, in fact, your identity. You must know those things. We know that we belong to God. That's the nature of the, of the genitive there, of God. We are God's with an apostrophe. We are not God's plural. We belong to him. We are his possession. And that the whole world lies beneath the evil one. The power is probably in italics in your translation. The power doesn't exist there. Kami actually is more like squished, subjugated. Um, you could say that that's an extension of power, but there's an element of humiliation involved, yes? The whole world, Satan has the whole world squished and crushed under his weight, and he's not even telling him to say uncle. He's just, that's just how it is. He's under the oppression 
or the whole world is under the oppression of the evil one, and you're not. We're not. I'm not. Because we belong to God. We know that we're God's. We belong to him. And presently, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. The thing is that I think the world likes it. I think the world likes it. I can't imagine being in that position. You know, when I was in junior high, I was larger than the average bear. I know that comes as a surprise to you. I was my mother's smallest baby, so, you know, it may have been a surprise to me. But in seventh grade, we would get in the pool and we would play chicken, right? And then it would devolve, it would degrade into simply just wrestling under the water. And... I really didn't know my own strength, and so I would end up with two people, unfortunately, holding me kind of under the water. I'm very touchy about this. I I told you I got hit by a car. I'm very touchy about kids around cars. I'm very touchy about kids in water because of this. They wrapped their skinny little toothpick arms around my neck, and I didn't want to hurt them, so down I went, two of them at a time usually. I can't imagine enjoying that experience. Can you? But the world knows nothing else. You can habituate to almost anything is normal. And the world has done so. The world says, hey guys, why don't you crawl under Satan's crushing weight with us? Why don't you crawl under this place? You have no freedom of movement, no freedom of choice. You can barely breathe. Come on in. The water's fine, folks. Come crawl under here with us. It's great. Wonderful. But you belong to God, and you know, you know, not necessarily from your experience, but you know that there is better. There is better. The world rolls over when it's faced with the power of the evil one. He can't touch us. But he is presently calling the shots in a very real sense in the world. Yes, subject to God's sovereignty. Yes, subject to God's plan. Yes, with an end in sight and with the fullness of restoration not only to the nation of Israel, but in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. He wins. But John isn't joking, and he doesn't pull his punches when he says that the whole world is being crushed by the evil one. We need to be less surprised by that. We need to be less surprised by that. I I say... Can I say less offended? That's a buzzword today. You need to be less offended by the fact that the world likes it under there. We need to be less snowflakey about it. 
That's a criticism that often people in my camp level at people in the world. I was like, well, the fact that you're so fixated on it may indicate that you are, in fact, a snowflake, sir. You have the victory in Jesus Christ. You belong to him. You know the situation. So why is it melting you down? That seems defeatist. When the world gets its marching orders from the originator and author of evil, you must refuse to succumb to your feelings about the matter and manage your response to your own incredulity. Because remember, they like it. They dig it. We need to be resilient in the face of that reality. It goes hand in hand with the earlier command, do not love the world. Now back then we said, do not love the world or the things in the world. And, and this is true, I'm not, it's all harmonious with itself. Do not love the world or the things in the world because it is a waste of the gifts that you have. It is a waste of your life. Do not, you have the opportunity as a believer in Jesus Christ to love sacrificially things that are permanent and eternal, i.e. your brothers and sisters in Christ. But also, should you choose to love the world and the things of the world, we, if we do that, that turns us into collaborators with the evil one. Perhaps not intentionally, but real nonetheless. So we know that. We know this, verse 21, we know that the Son of God has come. We know that. Again, you know that here, you did not see him come, unless I'm missing something. Y'all look awfully good for your age. Right? You know that as a matter of historical record, but you did not. This always drives me nuts when people say, we just need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as his disciple. Good luck. His footprints aren't there anymore. We know where it happened, but you're not following Jesus around in the world. That is a, that, that's a foolish enterprise. You need to focus on doing what Jesus said for you to do, not all of which he exampled for everybody, exemplified for everybody in the way that he walked because he was ministering to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and there are things that he told them to do that they rejected that he did not tell you to do and vice versa, Right? He did not ever tell them certain things that he told the church to do. You're a different group of people with different benefits who are involved by the Holy Spirit. Generally speaking, the things that he told you to do, you are required to submit to and walk by the Spirit to accomplish. And almost by definition, those things are not true of the things he told Israel to do going back all the way to the Ten Commandments. The standard is higher for what he asked you to do because you have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you in me. I have that. We know that he has come. And I would say this is actually a present active indicative. The idea is uh, that it's not done yet necessarily. He has given us understanding. He's given us the ability to, to synthesize and understand information so that 
we may know him who is true. So there's factual elements here that we know, but there's also a process that we grow in. He has given us understanding and discernment so that in our life we can grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Remember, we've made that distinction earlier in 1 John, that trusting is not the same as knowing, and you'll end up, I don't know where you'll end up. Biblical Timbuktu, if you can't separate the two concepts. Trusting, right, means that you don't know everything. It is, the things that are required to define trust is actually ignorance. You trust in the absence of knowledge. I would use the illustration of marriage here, but we have an engaged couple here, and I don't want to ruin their engagement. I won't ruin your engagement. Anyway, even if I did. All right. The day you get married, you don't know anything. The day you get married, you say, I depend, I'm going to trust. Probably the most you know is that at least you are convinced that that person also is committed to trust, but you're both ignorant. And you grow together in knowledge. The day you believe in Jesus, you know very, very little about Jesus. Jesus defines the minimum as believing that he offers you eternal life, I think. That, I mean, maybe that's the bare minimum, John six forty seven. He who believes in me has eternal life. Other people say there has to be some other factors in there, and, you know, they're probably right too, but I mean, that, that's pretty minimal. But even if you add 10 other things about who Jesus is, of all the things that are known about him who is true, about all the things there are to know about Jesus Christ, about all the things there are to know about how he interacts with the other persons of the Trinity, how it is that he can proceed from, or the Holy Spirit can proceed from the Father and the Son, and how he can indwell you and also be the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, how all those things can also be true. You don't know that. Heck, I've been teaching in churches for 20 years now. I don't know that stuff all the way, but I depend on this gift, knowing that God, the Son of God has come, that He has given me understanding that the labor that it takes to know and to understand and to grow is possibly, potentially fruitful, that I can unlearn things that I need to unlearn. I don't mean to hurt your feelings today, but how many things have you had to unlearn in your life that simply weren't true? Ouch. We know that he has come, and we know that we can know more about him, and that he's provided for that, and he wants it. He wants us to know him more, and we are in him who is true. So in that process, we begin to understand ourselves more. Right? That's the, the core element of modern psychology. You just have to know yourself. Okay, I know you. The person I don't know is Jesus. I know you and I know me. The core basic element of your psychology is that you're a dirty, rotten sinner. The way you're born. I don't need to know more about you than that. I know that based on that fact, you and I, we need a Jesus. You need a Jesus. I need a Jesus. Even Jacob. Everybody loves Jacob. Jacob needed Jesus. Jacob, can you believe that? Pastor's kid. I'm not a pastor's kid. I needed Jesus way more. 
that's all I need. I don't need to delve into your psychology of your childhood or heaven forbid into your in utero infancy and your experience of intersectionality and gender dysphoria before you're even born. I don't care. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. You know people are trying to say that, right? That you experienced these intersectional issues before you even saw the light of day. You're under the oppression of the white man. Sorry, guys. You know, they say infants can feel pain. I wonder if they can feel pain from their brain hurting, trying to understand how people can think that about them. Uh, Anyway, don't love the world because you know the Son of God has come. He wants you to understand Him. He's provided for you to understand Him. We are in Him. So if you want to know about who you are and how great the love of Christ is for you and how great the love of God is for you, you need to know Him. You need to exercise that understanding, which means that the only way to do that, by the way, is this. As a friend of mine has always said, if you want to hear what God says, read the Bible. If you want to hear Him out loud, read it out loud. That's essentially true, I will say. We're in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's how John defined it in chapter 17, verse 3, when he's there with his own, the the apostles that he chose, and he's there speaking to them, preparing for his departure. He says, this, this is eternal life. This is not how you get it. This is how you know you want it. You know the difference, right? See, somebody can tell me how I can get a bushel of celery, but I don't want it. So that's irrelevant information to me. John says this is how you get eternal life. This is why you want it, because to have it, the substance of what it is, is to know him. To know him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. That is the character of life that is of eternal quality like Jesus has. That's what he's saying. That's the life that Jesus lives, is in intimacy with his Father, in submission to his Father, in the glory that his Father grants to him. And the amazing nature of grace is that he grants that to us. And you can have it today in increasing measure. The experience of the substance of eternal life. Understand that's why it's important to separate the two. How you get it and what it is. If people confuse the two, they'll say that you don't have it today because you're not experiencing the fullness of it. That's not true. You have it today. Permanently. Absolutely. And it guarantees your future, and it guarantees your experience, and it guarantees the perfection of your knowledge of Christ in the day in which you are glorified, in the day in which you are begotten, in the day in which you are freed from moral defect and you no longer sin, and you are in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. You possess that today. But today, He has given you the ability to understand and discern and grow. and to experience the fullness of joy and the fullness of fellowship. This is the true God and eternal life. 
And the last verse has always seemed very disconnected to a lot of people. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We should say the things that we say every time we see a reference to the audience. God is not speaking to people through John here that are not his children. He is speaking to spirit and dwelt believers who have been instructed how to have fellowship, how to have fullness of joy, how to restore fellowship that needs to be restored, how to build up fellowship that needs to be built up, how to utilize fellowship in the local body, in this life, with their spiritual family in ways that are productive and loving to do what God wants them to do. And that's the same audience, little children. So when you think of idolatry, you think of Indiana Jones, right? The kingdom of the crystal skull. I think that was one of the worst ones. But they all have idols in them somewhere, don't they? Don't they? All. Idols all over the place. You read the Bible, you find out that even in God's covenant community, people stick those stupid little idols in their knapsacks and take off down the road with them. Worse than that, their family chases them to get them back. Let them go. (laughs) Do the children of God, or do you struggle? Can you struggle with idolatry? Is the command relevant to you? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Children of God, guard yourselves from idolatry. Yes. Adolon. Because it's not necessarily finding an alien crystal skull in some hole in the ground or finding, you know, people even turn uh, things that are, are relics, right? That's actually what happened. When you call something a relic, right, you find the knuckle bone of St. Peter like they did in the Middle Ages, all of a sudden that becomes God to them. They worship it. That's why a lot of us think that we don't have the original autographa. That's a big word that means the things that the Bible writers actually wrote because humans are just stupid enough that we would start worshiping those instead of the guy that revealed himself in the Word. The problem is, ultimately, that the New Testament draws uh, a connection, a connection between idolatry and the worship of demons. Revelation 9.20 says this. We're dispensationalists around here. It's always a good time to look at Revelation. You're close to it, by the way. You're almost at the end of the thing. Revelation 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed in these plagues, all the ones before, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. So they took a chunk of firewood or a little bit of jewelry or whatever and made something out of the work of their hands, but they were not worshiping the work of their hands. They were worshiping demons. I say were. They shall be. But that is the nature of idolatry, that you think you're setting yourself up as a deity when you worship the work of your hands, whether it is a piece of firewood or a necklace or a business 
or whatever else. The money, the income that comes from it, whatever. But when you displace the position of Christ and the position of God the Father from the priority and the absolute exclusive nature of worship, there is no scriptural alternative for human worship than worshiping demons, no matter what you think is happening. What do you think Latter-day Saints worship? Some being appears in a cave? Wasn't he illiterate? Was Joseph Smith illiterate? I think he was. Or am I conflating him with somebody else? Mohammed was illiterate, and yet he supposedly wrote down the whole Koran because he was confronted by an angelic being in a cave somewhere. So, you guys, you, you automatically think that that's a comic book. I don't think it's a comic book. I think that actually happened. Normal people say, holy crap, I need to get out of here and not listen to this because this is not the way God appears to anybody. This is not the way Yahweh communicates revelation to anybody. I need to flee here. I need to guard myself from this. <laughs> I think I'll write it down. I'll write it down and recreate a medieval death cult out of it. That's the, that is the potential dangers that come from idolatry. They're real. It's not just that you're overly focused on a stupid comic book or something that doesn't exist. It's another way in which we can become collaborators with the evil one. Because it's worshiping demons. It's associated with sexual immorality as well. It tends to take people down that road, destructive bondage in their lives. So yes, we do need to guard ourselves from idolatry. Maintain the exclusivity of the worship of Christ, the priority of God the Father, and everything that we do. Because worship is not just what you do here. I can guarantee you that if Jacob stands up here and asks you to sing a praise song to a book or something, Jacob, I'm, I'm using as an illustration. I'm not meaning to call his character into question. But if he does that, he's gone. He's gone. If I tell you that you ought to worship this bottle of water, fire me. It's that simple. But you don't just worship in this room, do you? No. You worship with every moment of your life. And I have no say in how you do that. I have no say in how you do that. Because I don't get up in everybody's business all the time. Right? I don't delve into all of your psychological problems. I just tell you about Jesus and Scripture and the Bible. Because you don't belong to me. You belong to God the Father. Do we cover that? You're his child and he loves you. And I am really just a fairly minor instrument in his hand to help with that process. But you belong to him. With the worship of your life, the liturgy of your life, Guard yourselves from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the warning that it contains. And we know, well, that some of those things seem hard and harsh. Uh, and we know also 
however, that your discipline is better than the consequences of those things you warn us from, warn us about. And we, we thank you for loving us that much. Uh, we thank you beyond everything else that you provided for us that we have this life in your Son, a life that we are commemorating today by remembering the substitution that he made for us, that he took our place in order to propitiate, to provide everything that is necessary to grant us life, to satisfy those requirements. Remembering that day, remembering also that we are proclaiming his soon return, his soon return for us. It's your son's name we pray, amen. Um, guys, this morning we are, it is Communion Sunday. We're commemorating Christ's death for us, but certainly also uh, proclaiming his death until he comes. And Scripture teaches us some things that we ought to do, and I'm pretty particular about that. In the context of 1 Corinthians 10, the passage, the verses that we read every month in order to proclaim these things. Follows right after instruction to the church where Paul was warning them of the direness, the severeness of the consequences of standing and proclaiming fellowship and communion with people uh, that you have offended. I don't use that term in the, in the snowflake sense, right? A scriptural offense, a sin that needs to be dealt with that you've committed against someone in the body. And the warning is severe. Uh, the warning is severe. And so, again, I'm not in your head, and I don't want to be, you don't want to be in mine. But if you have that, I beg you to deal with that this morning before you partake. Uh, certainly, we ought to spend a few moments uh, in prayer before the Lord or simply in silence and then I'll ask the men to come forward. And if you would come forward.
Father, we thank you for this time together as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us by subjecting himself to punishment that was cruel and uncalled for, but he knew no sin. And Father, he was beaten and the cruelty of it as we think about our Lord and Savior. He shed his blood for us that we may have everlasting life because of who he is and what he did for us on that cross. So we remember him and thank him and we praise him precious name of our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Sign of our bond. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please stand with us. We'll dismiss the last verse. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of his body here on earth as we share in his suffering we proclaim Christ will come again and we'll join in the feast of heaven around the table of Bless you guys. See you next week.